You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. As I mentioned, we're going to be continuing uh, in our series on the Ten Commandments and We began this series uh, earlier this year out of a desire just to return to the basics of what God's word teaches us. Over uh, the course of this year, we've looked at the Lord's Prayer and uh, the Ten Commandments just as building blocks, foundational to our growth in Christ and and foundational really to understanding what it means uh, to to follow Christ and and what the Christian life really looks like. And uh, as we go through the Ten Commandments, we we receive the Ten Commandments from a God who redeemed Israel. Uh, you know, I, as some of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, we've been uh, doing uh, a number of uh, different hand motions to remember. I'm going to give you a break uh, from that this week. We'll pick that up next week. Um, uh, but uh, we've been trying to memorize uh, these Ten Commandments. And it's easy sometimes to get in the Ten Commandments and just hear you shall not, you shall, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And forget that the commands come to us from a God who redeemed. Exodus 21 says uh, that, that the God who spoke the Ten Commandments said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. God is a redeeming God who brings Israel out of uh, enslavement in Egypt, redeems them by his mighty hand. And he says, those whom I've redeemed, this is how you are to live as my people. God is our creator and he is our redeemer. That's why we can trust his authority. So as we hear his commands, we receive them not uh, with suspicion that God is trustworthy, but with confidence that God is trustworthy. And what he says to us is for our good. Uh, and, and so as we look at these commands, we, we also understand as we look at the commands, the Ten Commandments, we don't just receive them as Israel received them at Sinai. We receive them on the other side of Golgotha. We receive them on the other side of the cross. And it's through Jesus's death and resurrection, if we have trusted in him, that our hearts have been made new and we have been given the spirit so that as we hear God's word, we don't keep God's word in order to be saved by him. We don't obey his commands in order to get grace from him. We receive grace from him through faith in Christ. And having received grace through faith in Christ, we respond in a life of obedience. And the order is important. If you get the order out uh, of, of sync, then you will be put, the burden of the law will be put upon you, but you won't have the means of keeping the law. The law will come and you'll hear it. And maybe, maybe I've, I've had conversations with uh, people today who are inclined to some aspects of the morality of Christianity. They don't like the exclusive claims about Jesus, that he is the only way of salvation, but they uh, are drawn to something about the, the morality and the, the ethics of the Christian life. But, but friends understand because of what Christ has done, the ethics of the Christian life are incapable of being lived out apart from receiving the exclusive claim of Jesus as savior. And that's why the cross and the resurrection are so vital that as we hear the law today, it transforms our understanding of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. That's why we can wear clothes of mixed fabric and why we cut the corner of our beards, that he's fulfilled uh, the law and its ceremonial and civic aspects. That's why you can eat crawfish and you can have bacon tomorrow or today or yesterday, whenever, however it goes. Like God has fulfilled the, the fullness of the law. And in doing so in the New Testament, what we see repeatedly is he affirms the, the commands of scripture that reflect his moral character as ongoing today. 
and we receive his commands and we look at the Ten Commandments today, not in order to get something from him, but remembering Christ has done everything that's needed for our salvation and that we look to the law as a guide to help us understand what it means to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God. And so when we step into talking about the Ten Commandments, it's important to, to have our uh, mindset correctly um, and, and, and rightly as we approach it. And so uh, as we come to uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment reads simply, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. As it's in many ways to talk about the seventh commandment today, I, I, I want to talk about honoring marriage in a polyamorous age. And you say, what is polyamory? Five years ago, I bet you most people would have said the same thing. However, in uh, some of the uh, premier news uh, sources uh, in our nation, uh, you'll find topics like open marriage, polyamory, non-monogamous relationships, almost like an oxymoron. They, well, those things would have sounded foolish to us, for many people, even outside of a faith tradition five years ago, even uh, even especially 10 years ago. Uh, but now these are common terms and, and concepts that certainly aren't perhaps the majority uh, practiced by couples today, but are being talked about as if it might be a good idea to consider these things for your marriage. In fact, the New York Times recently ran a story uh, that had seven questions to evaluate your marriage. And the title was, this was just this past week, are we still monogamous? And six other questions to ask your partner. Um, and so the questions uh, said, you know, what do we like to do together for fun? Like, you know, I can affirm that's a good question to ask your, uh, your, your spouse. Who takes the garbage out now? I guess it's trying to get at, you know, who does the, uh, the you know, house dynamics and how those responsibilities play out. Um, uh, what's one thing, you know, you like about your sex life? Talking about your romantic life, that's an important topic to, to discuss in your marriage. All those things are good. Uh, how have we helped each other through hard times? I'm like, man, we, these are some good, these are some decent questions. And then question five is, are we still on the same page about monogamy? Now in my marriage, the question would be, if that's even on the table, we need to like, we need to Let's go back. Like, let's have, let's, let's talk about some other things, right? Because something's off that, and what gets me is question six and seven say, what is something that's worrying you uh, that we haven't talked about yet? Well, Depending on what your answer to number five was, we may have something to worry about. Number seven is, how can I help you feel more loved? How about monogamy not being on the table, right? Like, um, and, and I, I poke at this, obviously, from a Christian perspective. You, you, you might say, well, obviously, this is, this is what you think. I think many people would look at this and say, uh, monogamy is foundational to marriage. In fact, ironically, there have been other stories I, I searched my hardest to find this, and I hope maybe I can find it this week. I think it was in the Atlantic, but it may have been the Washington Times or, or New York Times. But but basically, it was the opposite of this story. And it said in a age of, um, you know, in a hookup culture age and uh, where, where there's distrust and it's hard to build relationships and all these things, one thing you might want to consider in your marriage is settling down with one person over the long haul and being committed to one another. And And as you read the story, you're like, they just rediscovered marriage, you know, like that, that is marriage. That's the answer. Um, and, and so, but honestly, if we talk about marriage and we talk about honoring marriage, uh, it's easy to look at this and say, well, clearly that shouldn't even be on the table, but marriage isn't easy. Marriage is extremely difficult. Uh, and the statistics about divorce and the culture and in the, in the world demonstrate to us that marriage isn't always easy. 
there's there's a lot of pain uh, that accompanies marriage. There's a lot of confusion that accompanies marriage. And in my own life, I've uh, I've only been married once, um, but I've experienced two different divorces as a child. Uh, the, the pains of, uh, of, of marriage and brokenness in marriage and broken marriages, uh, surround us, uh, as a culture. I was at the pool recently and a little girl came up to me just randomly in the pool and said, I don't live with my daddy, but he's coming to town today. And she was excited about spending time with her dad. And as uh, a child from a broken home, like I know the joy that comes with getting to see a parent when you don't get to enjoy time with them. And I say that and I, I rejoiced with her and said, I can't wait for you to hang out with your dad. That's awesome. What's your dad like? You know, and, and you want to celebrate that and, 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 and enjoy what's good there. And yet you, you recognize behind that there's so much pain. That little girl probably doesn't even know how to articulate it all. And, and all of us perhaps could share stories of how that's touched our lives or we've experienced that in some way, shape or form. And as you pursue marriage, if you are married, uh, even as you seek to honor Christ in your marriage, it can be hard sometimes to honor him and love one another and, and keep your marriage vows and commitment to one another. So we're not approaching marriage and talking about honoring marriage uh, from a place of superiority, from a place of arrogance or pride, but from a place of humility that recognizes our need for God. And, and my desire as a believer and my, my job as a pastor is to give you what God's word says. As to, to allow us to catch a glimpse. What the Bible says about marriage isn't popular in our culture. Nothing that I say today will probably be super popular and trending uh, for a conversation this coming week. And yet it's essential for us not to recast what God has said in our own image and to the likings of our culture, but to ask ourselves, what might we be missing in our culture that God's word has clearly laid out and said? And what might we not be open to uh, because of what's going on around us that we need to hear from God's word? And so uh, as we think about the seventh commandment, we're going to see that we're called to, uh, to honor marriage and we're called to walk in purity. I, I found repeatedly that uh, various catechisms are helpful for unpacking just a broad statement of the commandments. And the New City Catechism uh, says it this way as it relates to the seventh commandment. The catechisms were used and are used by Christians to, uh, to really instill uh, truths of the faith uh, into their homes, into children. And, and as a parent asks them, they can't help but instill it into their own hearts uh, as well. And, um, and, and so what this is doing is trying to say, uh, here's, here's truths from God's word that uh, we, can, uh, we can kind of uh, commit to memory and, and help us to grow in, in our faith. And uh, if you do it, just kind of... Um, a void of, of any sense of need for God and dependence on God and grace from God, it can become stale and rote. Um, but when you do it with a, uh, with a sense of dependence and need for God, as you ask these questions, perhaps to your children or perhaps to yourself in your own devotion, uh, they, they awaken within you the calling of the Christian life. And, uh, and as it relates to the Ten Commandments, the calling of the Christian life and other questions, they relate to, to showing us who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, but the New City Catechism says it this way, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, or whatever might lead to them. You see, continually the, the catechism show us and scriptures show us that the prohibition of the Ten Commandments often entail with it uh, an exhortation in a positive direction that if we're not to commit adultery, what are the things that keep for not committing adultery? 
Well, walking in purity is what helps you not to commit adultery, uh, allowing your thoughts and your words and your actions to, uh, to be pure. Uh, when you're single, you honor marriage by uh, abstaining from sex outside of marriage and walking in purity in relationship to other people. When you are married, you honor marriage by honoring your husband or your wife and, uh, and, and, and living with purity and chastity in your marriage. And so we see that both prohibition as well as the exhortation and uh, Luther has this shorter catechism. Uh, he says in relation to the seventh commandment, what does it mean? It means that we should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do and that husband and wife love and honor each other. How do you commit from committing adultery? You commit to loving and honoring your husband or your wife. How do you uh, honor God as um, uh, in relation to the seventh commandment? As a single person, you commit uh, to loving and fearing God so that you would lead a sexually pure and decent life. It, it, it's an application uh, that reaches both to single life, singleness, and to marriage. But as we read this, uh, we have to we have to step back and say, okay, what does it what is it telling us? If we are to honor marriage, what is it telling us? about marriage. And I would say it this way, that marriage is the exclusive, unique, and all-encompassing union of one man and one woman for life. The Bible teaches us that marriage and sex are good gifts from God. They, they, weren't, they weren't our ideas. They were God's ideas. Uh, God has given marriage and sex as good gifts to his creation. And in doing so, he defines marriage. He, he's defined marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman. And it's in that covenant relationship that sex is enjoyed as a good gift. If sex is taken outside of the context of marriage, according to the Bible, uh, it is sexual immorality and in the context of marriage is adultery. And the Bible makes a big deal about marriage and adultery, not because God is a killjoy and doesn't want anybody to have fun and experience pleasure, but because he's given the boundaries in which we can enjoy his good gifts. And because marriage, God has given marriage as one of the ways in which we understand the gospel, his relationship with his people, the church. We'll look at this in a moment and more in depth, but the, the, the picture in the scriptures is that marriage, the husband and the wife portray and picture for us and remind us of Christ and the church. And, and when we think about our relationship with Christ, it's defined by his covenant commitment, by his promises to us. And it's defined by a relational intimacy in which we share with God that he is ours and we are his. You are my people, he says, and I am your God in Jeremiah. God is jealous for his people. He loves his people. He loves us so much that he gave his only son so that we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life while we were still sinners God demonstrated his love for us and that Christ died for us. His love is, is meant to welcome us into a, a relationship, a union with Christ. And, and when the Bible goes to describe how, how heinous our sin is and our separation from God, you know the language that it uses? It uses the language of adultery, that we are an adulterous people. And that we have uh, we have committed adultery against God and been unfaithful to him. And in the same way, adultery in marriage is the breaking breaking of our covenant commitment in marriage, as well as the spoiling of the intimacy that we were made and meant to share with our spouse by welcoming someone else in to our marriage. So God makes a big deal about marriage and adultery because it's 
a picture, uh, marriage of our relationship with him. Adultery is a picture of our sin and our need for his forgiveness and, and his grace. And in our, our marriages, we're reminded that we are to, to depend upon his grace in order to live out the marriage that he's given to us. And so as we look at what it says, I, I've said a few things that I want to unpack to, that, that I presupposed in my definition. First is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Genesis tells us in one and two explicitly that marriage is to be between a man and a woman, that the sexual complementarity of man and woman is foundational for marriage and foundational for God's design of marriage in which children uh, are to be born. Not all marriages will result in children, but God has given marriage and so that children will be welcomed into uh, a family in which there is a mother and a father. Uh, we live in a broken and sinful world, and that isn't always the case. And hear me say today, if you're thinking through, you don't know my situation or my circumstance, you're right, but I would love to. And I would, I would say, uh, as you think about these things, press into what God says and, and ask him to help you understand his mind on these things and then pour out your heart to him. And, and here at TCC, we say we, we want to be a church that we welcome questions. Uh, what I'm about to say, I already forecasted isn't a popular topic today. I say it not because I'm looking uh, to, to step on toes or to, uh, to, to just be contrary. I'm saying it because I want us to understand what God's word says so that we can welcome in and be a part of a conversation to say, God, I don't want to, to shape you according to how I think you should be. I want you to tell me how you say you are so I can follow you and understand who you are. And if you're struggling with that, uh, you're not the only person who struggled with that and would welcome you into that conversation. Um, but Genesis 1, 27 through 28 lays it out this way. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. And part of this complementarity of male and female creation was so that humanity could be faithful to fulfill what God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2 uh, unpacks this in more detail as it relates to Adam and Eve. And it says, the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, all the animals. And, and then Adam named all of them. Uh, and after doing so, there was not found a helper fit for him is what it says in verse 20 of chapter two, verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man, here's the foundation of marriage. Man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is foundational to marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and as, as, as we look at the foundation of marriage in this topic, as I say this, I, I recognize in our culture that the, the number one response to this topic in our culture is, man, you're behind the times, get with the times. Jesus never said anything about this. So uh, stop, stop, stop promoting hate basically is kind of the message of our culture. But, but I want to step back and say that's not true. We have to understand what God's word says, understand what Jesus taught us. He, uh, when we see Jesus pick up these statements in the New Testament, he affirms everything the Old Testament says and even goes deeper to the heart of the issue. We'll address this in a moment, a little bit further, but Jesus, uh, in speaking uh, about marriage, affirms what Genesis 2 
says about marriage, uh, specifically quoting uh, 24 and 25, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and that what God has put together, no man should tear apart in Matthew 19. Um, and, 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 and his broader teaching, he says, uh, and upholds marriage and yet recognizes that we live in a fallen world. And there's uh, what I see as kind of three exceptions uh, to uh, for divorce in the case of the biblical teaching as it relates to adultery, as it relates to abandonment of an unbelieving spouse and uh, what I would correlate to that abandonment of, of abuse. Um, and, and so Jesus recognizes the sinful world in which we live and yet holds up the ideal of marriage and in teaching on marriage uses most frequently the, the, the term that Jesus speaks against is sexual immorality. Uh, he prohibits any sexual immorality. It's the term for which we get, uh, pornography today. It's the word porneia. Um, and, as this is defined in scripture, porneia refers to unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, and fornication. It's kind of a, a basket category that refers to all sex outside of God's design for it, basically. It does that in the Old Testament. And when Jesus says it in the New Testament, Jesus isn't like carving out a niche understanding of sexuality uh, in some kind of sneaky way. He's not saying, you know, um, just don't, uh, don't have sex outside of marriage, but you can define marriage however you want. That's why I'm using this term and not other terms. Like Jesus isn't, isn't trying a sleight of hand type thing. The word that he uses is, is, an, is a, uh, a catch-all term that refers to all types of sexual practices outside of marriage, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality. It is uh, any sexual practice outside of marriage according to God's design. And Paul, as he teaches on this in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 is, a, is an interesting passage uh, on this topic because Paul unpacks the Ten Commandments in an interesting way. We looked at this uh, last week. We, we skipped over this commandment because we had all our kids in here. So we did the Eighth Commandment. Uh, and you might have thought, man, Michael was just afraid of talking about the Seventh Commandment. Well, now you know I'm not afraid of talking about it, but here we are. Um, and uh, as, we, as we looked at the Eighth Commandment, we saw how the Eighth Commandment, as it talks about um, not stealing, uh, as it was applied, Paul actually applied it in First Timothy 1.10 to enslavers. Uh, he showed how how not stealing wasn't just a reference to uh, to moving people's boundary markers, but it was a reference to how we actually treat people, and perhaps one of the strongest condemnation uh, of slavery. Um, and and we talked about the inconsistency so often of Christians as it relates to seeing something uh, in God's word and twisting it to make it what we want. Um, and and the same thing can happen today uh, in our culture. We can see something culturally that we want to affirm and take scripture and try to make it say what we want it to say. And we, we have to step back and say, I want to be I want to be consistent with God's word. I want to uh, I, I want to be honest about where I where Christians as a whole have failed in the past and consistent with what I'm reading today. And Paul, as he unpacks this in first Timothy one, eight through 11, he says, now we know that the law is good. If anyone uses it lawfully, understand this, the law is laid down for uh, not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The law is given basically to show us our sin, he's saying. And he sums up the first four commandments. It's given for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. But now he turns to the second half of the Ten Commandments. 
First, he talks about commandment number five. You shall honor your mother and father. He says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. Number six, uh, you shall not commit uh, murder for those who are murderers. And then number seven, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Number eight, enslavers. Number nine, liars and perjurers. He's going through, you can see him going through the commandment explicitly talking about this topic in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. And so Paul's unpacking the, the commandments here in a general way, kind of a summary way, and he does so. And he, he puts under the seventh commandment these two terms, porneia, and a, a new word that he coins as it relates to men who practice homosexuality. Now, if you dig into this topic, some of you might have dug into this topic and you've, un, you've, you've heard Christians uh, try to unpack what this is saying. Some people today would say, okay, we already heard Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality. Others would say, look, the, in the first century world, uh, the type of homosexuality that was practiced was exploitive. It was often older men uh, with younger women, almost like pedophilia. And so uh, the Bible condemns that, but it doesn't condemn uh, two consenting adults in a, in a, you know, in a committed relationship is, is kind of the idea. And and as we look at this term, we see uh, that that's, that's not what is happening here. There, the word that's used for men who practice homosexuality uh, is a similar term uh, to what's called pedastry, or what I was referring to earlier, often an exploitive relationship between older men and younger uh, men, uh, basically pedophilia in the first century. But Paul doesn't use that word. He coins a new word that's basically man uh, and bed. Um, and it reminds us of what God said in Leviticus 18.22, that a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And the opposite would be true as well. I say these things to, to help us understand the full teaching of Scripture on the topic and foundational in our culture where that is questioned to help us understand how the Bible speaks to and addresses that. And, the, and the, the thing that we step away from is that we see God has a design for marriage. It's not my idea. It's not my desire to push something on other people or as a believer for you to push something on other people, but for us to understand the consistent teaching of God's word. And when Jesus has the words of the Old Testament on his lips, he's not contradicting them. He's affirming them. When Paul is summarizing the Ten Commandments, He's not going beyond them. He's unpacking what they mean and pointing us to a consistent message that God has a design for marriage and it begins with marriage being between a man and a woman. But that's not all the Bible has to say. Mar marriage is also a covenant commitment. At the foundation of marriage is the covenant commitment of a husband and a wife. And as I said earlier, we live in a broken world and we see broken relationships all around us. And as we understand marriage, the statistics of, of the breaking of the covenant commitment amongst Christians uh, is on par, if not outpacing uh, at times, those who aren't committed to Christ. And I say that, and as I say that, I say that we should lament and bear that with great grief and shame as professing believers in Jesus Christ that we have not upheld marriage uh, in the way that God has called us to. And Malachi chapter two is the prophet is speaking to the people of Israel. He does what I said earlier. He shows the sinfulness of, uh, of, uh, of Israel and their, uh, their unfaithfulness to God. And then he presses it home to their own marriages. He says, um, have we all not one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. The ab abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem for they profane the sanctuary of God which he loves, and they've married the daughter of a foreign god. They're, he's speaking here of their, their idolatry of the gods around them. 
And the Lord has cut off the tents of Jacob and of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on and he says, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears. You go to church and you weep and you cry. But what do you do when you go home? You go home and as God is our witness, uh, you dishonor the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You profess to know God, you worship God, and yet you're unfaithful to the very commitments that you made to your spouse. And that's just a picture of your unfaithfulness to God. And so God continually upholds and shows us this kind of dual dynamic of our relationship with God and our the idea of marriage and, and how we, we've often been faithless to God and unfaithful to him. Um, and that speaks as well to the, to the call to faithfulness in marriage. Marriage is explicitly described as a covenant relationship. It's entered into with, upon the promise of the husband and the wife to be faithful until death do them part. Within this covenant, the husband and wife promise fidelity to one another. Hebrews 13, four says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In fact, the Bible's teaching on divorce demonstrates the significance of our covenant relationship where sin has occurred in marriage. The Bible says that there, there needs to be reconciliation. And as I mentioned earlier, the exceptions are given of adultery, of abandonment or, um, uh, or abuse. But in all these cases, um, particularly as it relates to uh, just your general run-of-the-mill differences, when people say, we're just done, we're, we just had enough, we're, we're ready to call it quits. Uh, I, I, and in really all cases, uh, I want to say, uh, I love this quote from John Stott. He says, I have made the rule never to speak with anybody about divorce until I have first spoken with him or her about two other subjects namely marriage and reconciliation. Sometimes a discussion on these topics makes a discussion of the other unnecessary. At the very least, it's only when a person has understood and accepted God's view of marriage and God's call to reconciliation that a possible context has been created in which we may regretfully go on to talk about divorce. That's how serious God upholds it. It's a covenant relationship. That's how serious we should uphold it. Marriage is a covenant commitment between a husband and a wife, but it's also about the gospel. Ephesians 5.32, we won't read it for time, but it, it, right in the middle of his instruction of husbands and wives, Paul says all of this is about Christ and the church. The marriage relationship points us to the gospel. In fact, I would say carrying out marriage as God designed it and he calls a husband and wife to live it out is only possible because of the gospel. If you look to Ephesians 5, you'll see how Paul talks about the gospel in a few different ways. He says a wife submits to her husband as to the Lord, a reminder that it's God who lovingly gave himself up for us. Husbands and wives, uh, though they have unique roles in marriage, they're both the bride of Christ. They have Christ as their bride, which means Jesus is both of their saviors. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You can't think about love without thinking about the gospel. The gospel is about God giving himself up for us. As we consider love for one another, how can it not be self-sacrificial love? Any other love is superficial. As the bride of Christ, both husbands and wives are nourished and cherished by Christ. We'd say it this way, marriage cannot flourish as God designed it unless it's watered by the streams of the gospel. 
You, you might have a happy relationship. You might have a decent marriage, but I'm telling you to, to pursue marriage as God designed it, not for our, uh, not just merely for our happiness, but for our sanctification, which through it, we become more like him as the men and women God created us to be. That happens when we submit ourselves to Christ and are nourished by the gospel. Marriage is meant to point us to the gospel, but at the same time, I'll say this, uh, marriage isn't everything. There's two things that I think need to be said. I want to amend this. Marriage is good. And I want to commend you if you desire marriage to pursue marriage. It's good. It's a good gift. But it isn't everything. The most fulfilled human being who ever walked this, this earth was Jesus and he wasn't married. Marriage doesn't equate to the pinnacle of earthly happiness or fulfillment. Jesus, as I said, wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. He said, I wish others were as I so they could flourish and thrive as instruments in God's hands. In fact, in in Jesus' teaching on Matthew 19, the disciples were like, man, Jesus, this is hard stuff. And Jesus said, if such is the case uh, of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry and, 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 and as that was their response to, to Jesus's teaching and Jesus replies, he says, not everyone can receive this, but only those to whom it's given. In short, Jesus says that celibacy and singleness is a meaningful and good path in God's kingdom, that sexual fulfillment isn't necessary for kingdom fulfillment, for, 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 for pursuing God's purpose in the kingdom of God. One isn't required to be married or experience sexual fulfillment. In a recent book, I've referred to this before, a book by Sam Alberry called The Seven Myths of Singleness. He says, while marriage tells us the story of the age to come, the marriage between the church and our groom, Jesus, singleness now is a way of saying that this future reality is so certain and so good that we can embrace it now. He says that it is a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ, we possess, we possess what is. Marriage is, is beautiful and is a good gift, but it isn't everything. It's meant to point us to the one who is. And in your singleness, as you draw near to him, you can experience and taste the satisfaction of being in relationship with our Savior God, who has purpose and fulfillment for you in his plan, in his kingdom, right where you are at as you are there. Don't think for a minute that you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God if you're not married. And if you are married, don't take it for granted for a second. Recognize God has a purpose in your marriage for you to reflect and display the gospel. We're called to honor marriage, but we're also called to walk in purity. Jesus uh, leads us to this. If you flip over to the Sermon on the Mount, You think I'm intense on this. Listen to what Jesus has to say. <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. If you hadn't heard it before now, you have heard it. That's what the first part of the sermon was, right? Jesus said, well, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, here's where Jesus goes a little intense. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. 
Jesus shows us that the seventh commandment not only calls us to avoid adultery and, and lust, but he says that we ought to pursue purity at all costs. We ought to pursue purity at all costs. Jesus speaks here in, in reference specifically to um, men as his disciples are listening, but it applies both to men and women. And what he's saying is that sexual sin begins with looking or imagining with lustful intent. The word that he uses here, with lustful intent, speaks of, of dwelling on or the desire to being romantic or sexually involved with someone. This can happen in our minds. Uh, sometimes as, as you read, whether it's a romance novel or through viewing pornography, it can happen even through uh, movies and shows that we watch today in which pornography seems to just creep into more and more. And as, uh, as Jesus speaks to this, he's, uh, he's speaking of, uh, of any, as he speaks of sexual immorality and lustful intent, any sexual expression outside of God's boundaries is sin. Now, he's not saying necessarily that the internal and the external are exactly the same, that lust in your heart is, um, is exactly the same as adultery, but he's saying they're both external and internal, equally sinful and deserving of God's judgment. And that the outworking of adultery begins with the lustful intent of the heart. And the lustful intent and the desires of the heart are equally sinful as the outworking of our sin. So the person who says, well, I've never gone that far should check themselves upon Jesus's words as he calls us to pursue purity at all costs. That's the, the question in the younger years of, of how far can we go? Uh, that the, this idea of pushing the boundary. Well, Jesus teaches us and the Bible teaches us that in relationship to men and women before marriage, uh, a man is to a woman as a, as a, as a brother uh, and a woman is to a man as a sister that they are to treat one another with honor uh, and respect and dignity. And then as that relationship grows, they express their interest, but within a commitment to pursuing purity and protecting their relationship until they commit to one another in marriage. We, we have this picture uh, here of pursuing purity in thought and deed. It's a, a purity of, of the whole heart. It's, it's not Jesus saying you can do whatever you want, just check your heart, you know. Uh, it's a pursuing purity wholeheartedly, thought and deed in all areas. And he, he gives two illustrations to show the seriousness of this. He says it's better to be without your right eye or your right hand than to give in to lust or sexual immorality. It's better to be impaired than to, uh, to, to give in to sexual sin. Now, let me be clear what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is calling for self-control and self-denial, not self-mutilation, uh, just to, to be abundantly clear of what he's teaching on. And there's a church father origin who, uh, due to his struggle with lust, plucked out his eye uh, out of a desire to obey this. Uh, Jesus uses this exaggerated statement to show that whatever we must do, we should do to pursue purity. And he's making this statement to say to basically, to, to, he says that the lust in thought or worked out in action is deserving of God's judgment. So to cling to having sex our way, expressing sexuality our way without repentance is to welcome God's judgment upon ourselves. And that's the thing about sexual sin. You can go headlong into it and maybe no one knows with pornography. Maybe no one knows the extent of your uh, pursuit of sexual immorality. 
Maybe there's a secret relationship that no one knows about right now. You can go headlong into it. It doesn't seem that judgment comes. Maybe nobody finds out. And maybe they don't. Think about that. Here's what terrifies me. Not that my sin will be find out, found out, but that I might go on in unrepentant sin and never, never bend and bow the knee to God. Your sin may not find you out in this life, but all sin will find us out in the life to come. And to give ourselves to sin is to welcome God's judgment upon us. We may not see and feel it now, but God declares that it will come. Rather, he's saying we should do anything necessary to pursue purity. And I think in many ways, if we're to pursue purity, we have to, we have to address the lies about sex that float around in our culture. I got this uh, thought from a quote from Trevin Wax. He says, the paradoxical view of sexuality in our society requires um, a paradoxical response from the church. He says, our Christian witness must put sex in its place meaning that we will need to take sex and sexuality more seriously and less seriously than the rest of society. And here's, here's how I would unpack this. I would say the two lies are this, that Jesus is saying, as we think about this, these, these two lies, that sex isn't nothing, or the, the lie is that sex is nothing, that in our culture we treat sex casually. This is why pornography is so rampant. Sexting is normal. Rather than a covenant together for life, we uh, have embraced a hookup culture. It seems strange and indeed off-putting to say that two consenting adults shouldn't have sex whenever they want. Because we kind of say, look, sex is what it is, almost as if it's nothing. But in response, we must be a people who see that sex is serious. It's not nothing. It's not everything, but it's not nothing. It's, it's not something to be seriously avoided, but it's something to be seriously guarded and kept within the bounds of marriage. Christians aren't killjoys. They're about finding joy in the right ways. As we said, marriage and sex point us to our relationship with God. And so sex within marriage is to be enjoyed with confidence and security and oriented towards the creation of new life. And we take sex seriously by fighting against impurity and sexual immorality. We're, we're honoring marriage and honoring our husbands and our wives were, were enjoying fully what God's made us to enjoy. And in the church, to call one another out about sin shouldn't be strange. To lovingly encourage and pursue accountability with one another. To help others pursue purity in the body of Christ. To pray for and, and encourage each other to pursue purity should not be strange in the church. It will be strange in the culture. It should not be strange in the church because sex is something, but sex isn't everything. That's the second lie. Sex is, ev is everything. The idea uh, is kind of swings in the op opposite direction, that sexual fulfillment and sexual self-expression is vital for happiness. And this is why to question the validity of someone's sexual attractions or practices, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, is, is at times almost seen as calling into question a person's personhood or damaging their identity or dehumanizing them by submitting them their desires to scrutiny. That's the, that's the narrative of our culture. But in response, the church must say human dignity must not be defined by sexual attraction. Human dignity must not be defined by se sexual attraction. Staking our identity on our sexuality or pinning our hopes on happiness based upon our sexual fulfillment is ultimately too low of a goal for human beings made in the image of God. 
God has made us for himself and to reduce our understanding of humanity and self-expression to our sexual urges is to deny who God's made us to be. The church must reject the often unstated assumption that human flourishing is dependent upon sexual relationships. When you look at identity throughout the Bible, uh, this centering of self is foreign. And one New Testament commentator said scripture, who teaches at Duke University, says scripture, along with many subsequent generations of faithful Christians, bear witness that lives of freedom, joy and service are possible without sexual relations. Never within the canonical perspective does sexuality become the basis for defining a person's identity or finding meaning and fulfillment in life. God has given us his good boundaries and our identity isn't wrapped in our expression of our sexual expression or uh, or fulfillment of sex, but is wrapped up in knowing him and submitting our desires to him. So if we're to pursue purity in this way, practically, what does this look like for us? Let me just give you these four things because I believe the pursuit of purity is essential for the honoring of marriage. One, we must talk with someone. The truth is about pursuing purity, we're never alone. And we also can't overcome sexual sin alone. We're tempted to think we can. But the scriptures invite us to share and confess our sin with a brother or sister in Christ that we might find help and encouragement. That person cannot pursue purity for you. But God has not made you to experience this, this pursuit alone. Set boundaries. Be honest about where you experience temptation. The number one topic that you should think about is your use of technology. Your consumption of media. What boundaries do you have on your phone, on the shows that you watch? Are you anything goes or do you set boundaries? Do you have some type of accountability in your life? Maybe it's something like a a covenant eyes on a computer or uh, maybe it's a relationship with a friend who you can talk with. Maybe can, is there anyone in your life who can look you in the eyes and say, are you walking in purity? And you can't squeam out of it and lie. We need that kind of accountability. We need those kind of boundaries. Husbands and wives, you should, you should have those kind of, 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 of conversations and boundaries where uh, you're open and your spouse can, can know what you watch or know what, you, what you, you look at, that there's that type of openness and communication in your marriage so that you can walk in purity. But walking in purity, number three, calls us to delight delight ourselves in God. There's an old Puritan, Thomas Chalmers, who said, how do you overcome a strong desire like sexual temptation? How do you overcome that desire? Just white knuckling it until it goes away? Just, you know, beating yourself in the head until it goes away, going on a run? Maybe, Maybe that helps. But he says the way you overcome a strong desire is by the expulsive power of a greater affection. You replace your desire for lust and for porn and for sexual immorality with a reflection upon the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the glory of God. You reflect on who God is and what he's done for you. And if you say, well, I thought about that, but it didn't help. Well, keep thinking about it. Hide his word in your heart. Say, God, I'm I'm not going to sin against you. I'm going to hide your word in my heart. And ultimately remember the gospel because he calls us to purity. And that purity can only come when we receive forgiveness and restoration for our own sin. 
There's no sexual sin that's beyond the hope of the gospel. There's no sexual sin that's beyond God's forgiveness. God invites us to confess our sins to him and to run to him for the run to the one who who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the dead. And the one who rose from the dead gives us a spirit and enables us to say no to our sinful desires and to say yes to righteousness and to holiness. We must pursue purity at all costs. And I want to close with just a word, a word to the tempted, a word to the wayward and a word to the wounded. I was encouraged reflecting on the scriptures this this week. If you feel pulled and tempted towards sexual sin, but you're seeking and desiring to fight it, remember 1 Corinthians 10 that says, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you. That's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he provides a way of escape. Remember that that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, that it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, Lamentations chapter three. Remember that Hebrews tells us that God has made propitiation for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God against our sin because he himself suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Remember second Timothy two says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith and peace. If you're tempted, be strengthened that you're not alone putting to death your lust. Just when you think you're out of strength, his mercies are new every morning. Just when you think you can't stand any longer, he is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. Don't allow the desires to give birth to sin. Bring them to Christ. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. He's able to help us when tempted, when we flee to Christ. To the wayward, perhaps you've given in to temptation and given in to sexual sin and don't feel like you can turn away. Maybe even don't know that you want to turn away. Remember that Galatians 6 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for what one sows. He will also reap the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap life. Remember that Ephesians 5 says the sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness shouldn't even be named among God's people. And Colossians says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. And if Christ has got a hold of your life, when he appears, you'll appear with him in glory. So to prepare for what's to come, put to death now that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Remember James 4, 4 through 10 says, you cannot pursue friendship with the world and friendship with God. To pursue friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. God yearns jealously over those whom he's made and whom he's given his spirit. But know this, he gives more grace. For this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians, that that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, that no one transgress or wrong his brother and sister in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of these things. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this does not disregard man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Come home. Your sin will not satisfy. Your sexual satisfaction is not worth your eternal condemnation. Come home. God's will for you is better, greater, more noble, more enthralling, more satisfying than even the fleeting uh, uh, and, and momentary burst of gratification. Stop sowing to your sin because Christ is better. Submit to him. He gives more grace. You can't go on serving two masters. God demands your allegiance and he alone is worthy. And to the wounded, maybe you feel like you're fighting your sin, but you can't escape the grip. 
of guilt. You can't escape what's happened in the past. Remember Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cry to the Lord. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. If the Lord should mark our iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Remember Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Remember 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember Romans 8, 31 says, if we are in Christ, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Take heart. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. His grace is greater than our sin. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Take heart. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is only forgiveness for those who have confessed their sins and trust in Christ. Friends, this is God's word to us as we think about pursuing purity and honoring marriage. And as we think about how to respond as a church, I want us to be a church that's faithful to God and his word, as well as a compelling witness in a sexually wounded and wayward culture. If we're going to do that, we can't be a scared church that just goes about screaming at people in anger and condemnation. We can't be a compromised church that compromises either through our silence of our own beliefs or accommodation to our culture's belief. Instead, we must be a church that's committed to holding fast to what God says. Too often we look out in the world and try to confront their problems, but what we need to do is start at our own house. We need to confront our own problems. And then we can be a people and a place that holds its arms open to those who are broken and hurt and confused by our sexually broken world. A while back, I came across Jeremiah 6, 16. We'll close with this and respond to the Lord. God was speaking to Israel, calling them to repentance and for their hardness of hearts. And he says, stand by the road and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your soul. And I just couldn't help but think about God's call for us, the kind of church that I pray we are, a church that that's taken hold of God's ancient path and is walking in it, experiencing rest for our soul, and then calls out in a broken and confused world and says to those around us, here's the way. It's an ancient way. It's an ancient path. It's marked by what Jesus said. The path is a good way. Yes, it's narrow, and it may be hard, but it's good. And on that path, and only on that path with Jesus, can you find rest for your souls. Let's be a church who does business at home, but then holds out our arms to a world around us. It says there is a God who's spoken on these matters, who holds out his arms in grace and mercy to all who will come to him, calls us to honor marriage, who calls us to walk in purity. But he calls us not to be scared or compromised. He calls us to stand firm and with arms open wide, just like our Savior, who said to me, come, whatever you got, bring it, bring it to me. Because on the cross, I took the punishment and the judgment for your sin. So that if you come to me, you'll find forgiveness. You'll find life. You'll find rest for your soul. Let's pray.